All right, everyone. Um, it's good to see. Good to see you again. We're going to finish off um, the this whatever whatever year we get to. Um, I think I said 100 originally. I guess I was being cautious. We'll probably get through about 150. Ooh. So, yeah, we left off talking about, basically it was the uh, temple's destruction was the last thing we covered. And what this led to was irreconcilable differences between Christians and Jews. Um, and, and primarily, we're not exactly sure about all the reason for it. Some of it's speculation, but it does seem like um, Christians not joining in on defending Jerusalem was a big deal. Not the only deal. Now, the difference between these two is going to become very apparent as we move on uh, into this period of time that's often called um, uh, a per- the period of the apostolic fathers. Um, and what this is, is what it sounds like. Um, these are early church leaders that are not apostles, but they were connected to one of the apostles, sometimes more than one, but generally one of them. And so they, they tended to carry a little bit more authority because, like, they could say, you know, this is what John meant. This is what uh, Peter meant. So this is the very earliest phase in church history post-Bible. These figures don't show up in the Bible. Um, so just to show you the stark difference between uh, pre-70 AD and post-70 AD, uh, the leadership... Uh, in the previous period of time, was overwhelmingly Jews who converted to Jesus as Messiah, but you know they would have just called themselves Jews. Uh, there's a few exceptions here. Uh, somebody like Luke or Timothy. There's some exceptions of Gentile church leaders, but they're predominantly, even overwhelmingly Jewish. And then following 70 AD, I actually can't think of one example of a major leader who, uh, in, the, in the church that was, uh, had a Jewish background anymore. So just to show you this, that 70 turning point, things just change. They look a little bit different, and uh, you see a little bit more Greek philosophy come out, uh, just like you would today, like, you know, American philosophy, right? Uh, Christianity's growth is fascinating. I think I was really surprised the first time I saw these numbers, we don't know early on how many Christians there were. So like before uh, roughly 150, we don't really, we don't have any guesstimation. It would just be literally made up from thin air. But by 150 AD, I know we're not there yet, but just to give you an idea, there's only 40,000 Christians. By 180, it jumps up to about 100. There's a lot going on in the mid-100s. By 200, a lot going on then, too, quarter of a million, and this seems like a really specific number. These are not my numbers. I'm not, like, you know, coming up with this stuff. This is the best that people that study just this can come up with. By 250, a lot of persecution coming up during this time. It jumps up past 1 million. Uh, For a frame of reference, the population of Rome peaks at about 65 million or so, The Roman Empire, not the city. So the population of the Roman Empire peaks at about 65 million. Uh, By 250, it's probably closer to 50 to 60. Um, They're struggling a little bit. So that's a pretty significant portion, but it's still not what you're thinking, right? It's not until Christianity is legalized 
in um, roughly 313, you can say, yeah, 313 is fine, that the numbers just jump up and everyone's like, hey, I'm a Christian. You know, the emperor is Christian now, so it's like cool to be like, I'm a Christian too. And, you know, again, how many of those are actually Christian? That's another question, but that's not one that we can answer. Point being, in this period of time, there's not as many Christians as what you're probably thinking. Uh, I, I don't have any number for you, but I think less than 40,000 is a very safe, safe bet as we're moving into 70 AD and beyond. So we're going to talk about the three main apostolic fathers that typically come up. Uh, we don't know tons about their life. We know a lot about their death. Christians love talking about their favorite, you know, Christian leaders, martyr. I know it's super morbid, but remember, this is a period of time up until the 20th century that you bury your own dead. You don't pay somebody to bury your dead. You do it. So the familiarity with death is such that it's not that morbid. for It's just like normal. So, And when you add in that you're a Christian who believes that death is the biggest joke ever, death is dead in Jesus, death isn't like this scary thing to them. Well, I know, yeah, that's a weird introduction. I almost have to keep saying that in my classes because students are just very, people today are just very unfamiliar with, not everyone, but in general, our culture is repulsed by death or age even. So we got Clement of Rome here. We don't know too much about him at all. Uh, we, 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 do, we do, but not like personal details. Like I don't know what his favorite ice cream flavor is, right? I don't know where he you know, grew up with any level of certainty. Um, we think he was the second or third bishop, that's the main church leader, um, and, and in the city of Rome, definitely Rome, and, uh, and bishop sometime around those years. So some, some argue he is the fourth bishop. Before him, we're not really sure. It, it, it goes dark. But Clement, we do have one writing from him for sure. That's first Clement. Um, there is a second Clement, but we're pretty sure he didn't write it. And this is a letter to our favorite city, Corinth. Corinth is always kind of, uh, they're rowdy, they're licentious, they have lots of problems. There's a reason for it, you can study, it's fascinating. It's, it's a rowdy city, right? I don't know, what's the, what's the equivalent today? Las Vegas. Very nice. Yeah, that's, that's it. So when he's talking about the rowdiness in the city of Corinth, um, Paul dealt with this. You read First and Second Corinthians. Uh, his answer was similar to Paul but a little bit more reliant on submit to the elder slash bishop, presbyter slash bishop. Presbyter is rendered elder. Um, This kind of sounds like weird. A lot of times when you're reading First Clement, you get this idea of like this pure hierarchy. and, um, and, and, And some of that's true given Roman culture. But this is not an authoritative tone. It's more of a Pauline tone. As you submit to one another, submit to your leaders, right? Um, so we, you know, you can read that on your own. It's a fascinating read. We don't really know much about him, so I can't really give you a biography without making stuff up. But we do know how he was martyred, and this was not a normal way to go, so I'm not even sure why. But he was tied to an anchor thrown in the sea, right? So that's one of the better ways to go uh, if you compare it with some of the other ones. 
Um, so, uh, again, whenever periods of persecution popped up, generally the church leader in town is going to be the first one to go. And there you have it. Clement of Rome, he's attached to Peter, by the way. We don't know much about his relationship with Peter, but we knew that he studied, we, we think he studied under him. That's actually less clear. It becomes a little bit more clear with connections with apostles with this next guy. Uh, he wrote a lot more that we still have survive um, today, and that's Ignatius of Antioch. Whenever you see somebody's name of a city, it means they're the bishop there, typically, right? So Ignatius is uh, or was the bishop of this important city, Metropolis, another important metropolis, Antioch. Um, we really have no idea about dating him. I know it's, it's really crazy how, how, you know, we're not really even sure. But my best guess is he died in 108 under Trajan, but there's some that argue he died really, like, uh, a while after that. Um, people don't write down, you know, dates back then. Dear Diary, my favorite leader died on this day. No, no one's doing that. Um, so, which we all like dates, don't we? No, we don't care. But he was called the bearer of God, um, and he's sort of like a, a major hero in early Christianity. He was connected closely with the Apostle John, talks quite a bit about learning under John. Um, John lived a while. This is John the Apostle. John lived a while and had a lot of different disciples, um, Ignatius being one of them. Uh, now, in Ignatius, we actually get a lot more develop theology that you know you're familiar with some stuff starts getting much more clear in first clement it's really practical and ignatius writes that way too but he's also a little bit more uh theological oh all right there we go i don't know why that popped up anyway so here's some examples uh he's not obviously the first to argue this paul argued this jesus argued this but uh, making it very clear that Jesus is God and attaching this important notion to how salvation works. This comes out quite a bit in Ignatius, um, and it develops as time goes on, but we'll keep it simple for now. We also get a lot, a lot more even, about the importance of the Lord's Supper and it sometimes uses language that might sound kind of mystical to you. It might kind of sound weird, but it's actually a typical way for Christians, including in our faith tradition, to talk. Um, and that's, that's uh, in one place. He says this in several places, but to quote one place, he says that it's the medicine of immortality. Um, the early church thought of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, as, as containing that grace that God uses to transform us, right? Um, this is an idea that can be developed biblically pretty, pretty easily. It might be kind of foreign to you because you might think it's associated with uh, certain forms of Christianity, but this is part of the Protestant tradition as well. And that's the idea of connecting uh, feasting in the Bible, eating and drinking, and looking upon God. So if you go back to Mount Sinai, uh, only the elders and higher-ups were allowed halfway up the mountain. And, and the language used is very clear. They ate, they drank, and they saw God. 
uh, as the Bible develops, uh, there's this promise of the new covenant where this is going to happen permanently. Um, and go figure when Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And then how does the Bible end? Eating, drinking, seeing God. Right? And they thought of the Lord's Supper as this, uh, this sign that we have now that really contains God's grace. God gives us grace through this meal. So that's what he means uh, in that. Not that the bread is magic, but that God uses his sign intentionally. It's not disconnected. That you're, 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 it's sort of a reminder that we're going to be eating upon God forever. Uh, they like to use metaphor. We don't like metaphors today, do we? Um, but anyway, really, really fascinating. Uh, that shows up a lot. So as you're reading some of these people, you might kind of think it's weird, but you know, that's the way the reformers saw it too. Um, he's also, uh, this is a little bit more debatable, but I think he's the first to clearly articulate the distinction between elder and bishop. And he argued for a single bishop in each city. And that seems to be the norm. So uh, as time goes on, uh, I'm going to cover this a little later, so I won't say much now, but just know there's developing structures. Just like, you know, you want clarity about things, what this role does, what does this role do, and that does happen over time. One might say it gets a little bit more hierarchical. Is that a word? As time goes on. But uh, that's, um, I think that's actually safe to say. Uh, Martyrdom, he... I gave it away with that Renaissance shot. Oh, you can't see. Yeah, that's a, a lion. I think that's like a leopard dog or something. I'm not sure. He, they're, they're not friendly. They're eating him. Um, so he was, um, that, that was something that wasn't uncommon, that um, Christians would be um, left. They might be given a sword, and then they'd have animals set against them that were starving. And the people in the Colosseum would watch and cheer. That was entertainment back then. Really glad we don't do that one anymore. Uh, there is something really unusual about Ignatius here, that he is the church leader of Antioch, and um, the Roman police knocked on his door and said, hey, uh, somebody told on you you're a Christian. And he's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. But instead, when he didn't recant, instead of killing him in Antioch, for whatever reason we're not sure, they brought him to Rome. Uh, maybe he was a really important church leader. Maybe they wanted, you know, to save it for the capital city. Uh, but he, he journeyed all the way on foot, I think most of the way, uh, from Antioch to Rome. And while he was on that journey, he wrote several letters that we still have. They're very Pauline-sounding, kind of like Matt, mix Paul and John together. Really good stuff. You can find it all online. This is all free now. But you get the archaic translations that are now free instead of like the good stuff that might resonate more with your English today, but it's still readable. So we're not sure how that is. Some, some have suggested that he appealed to, uh, that Antioch appealed to the emperor, and that would mean that you come to Rome. Um, the reason that doesn't make sense is he was bound on the journey. He talks about being bound up, but if you appeal to the emperor, you can't get bound up. You get like a free for all. You're, you still get, uh, uh, what do you call it, escorted by the police, but you're not in chains. Not really sure. It's kind of a weird, uh, we're not sure what happened there. Uh, but we do know that, um, and he knew, actually, they told him, you're going to be eaten by wild beasts. He uses this language. In fact, in one letter, he tells his friends and his congregation in Antioch, 
don't set me free. I know you guys have a plan to set me free. Um, I need to be ground up by the wild beasts so that I can be pure bread of God. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about serious Christianity here. Well, he knew something that we often forget. Um, Jesus actually makes this comment, right, about being lifted up, crucified, and that's when the world's going to see. That's when all the eyes are going to open. Antioch, got, or, uh, Antioch, Ignatius got that. So it's, it's hard stuff. I'll read this with my classes, and it's just like, wow, there's a lot of reflection. Like, would I do that? I'd be like, save me, friends. By the way, his, friend, his disciples were allowed to follow him on the Roman journey. But they're not arrested. No one told on them. So they're okay. And they watched it. And then after, the Roman authorities gave the bones, whatever was left. Sorry, this is really graphic. But I'm not sure how else you explain how early Christians thought, other than just be very mild and temperate about talking about stuff they would talk about. It's like, hey, we got the bones. (laughs) It's like, that's really cool for them. Like, hey, it's our hero. He's going to be resurrected. That's what they're, you know, that's the reminder that they have. So different kind of world. This is not Sunday night football. Uh, it's a different level of entertainment than that. Um, so that's number two. That's Ignatius. Wrote quite a bit. We know more about Ignatius just from inferring in his letter. Um, we know a little bit less about Polycarp of Smyrna. We do know these things. He's called in different places a disciple or a correspondent of Ignatius. So he studied under Ignatius, um, and he also was friends with him. We know that. And he's also called a hearer of John. I'm not sure what that means. John lived in the 90s AD, very likely. So that puts him at an age of being able to study under John. And he does say that he studied under John, or he's a hearer of John. What, what, what level, we're not sure, but we studied a lot under Ignatius. So this is another apostolic father, a fascinating figure. Um, and what's really interesting about this, and this is referenced in church history, but also historians today think it's plausible that John the disciple actually made him bishop. So really cool to think about. Um, the only thing that makes that doubtful is how, how young Polycarp would have been. That puts him below 30, and that's not how people thought back then. So, but you can have a young bishop, right? Um, and uh, he lived quite a while, notice. We're a little more certain about his years. There's less dispute about them. He lived till he was 86. Um, in fact, in some of the quotes right before the Roman authorities confronted him, hey, you've been told on... <laughs> Show me your drugs. No, you're a Christian, right? So the Roman authorities confronted him and asked him, recant. And he's like, no, I'm not going to recant. And this is, a, this is an older, you know, 86-year-old. They're like, I don't want to watch you die. Uh, we don't want to kill you. Can you just, okay, uh, you know, fingers behind the back crossed. And he's like, no, um, you know. Uh, and then they reply, well, you're going to be burned. That's, a, that's not a good way to go. You're going to be burned. And he said, well, I might burn for a little bit, but at least I won't burn eternally. <laughs> Snappy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it's, not, it's more of a paraphrase. Um, that my fire will go out. Um, 
but I will not burn eternally. So um, he was bound, burned. That's pretty standard. Um, and then the fire didn't consume. Maybe the Romans messed up. Maybe it was intentional. We're not sure. So they ended up stabbing him. So, and again, his disciples are there. Here's the bones. And they bring it back with them. Weird times, but that in Rome was actually relatively typical. Remember, you bury your own dead. You have to deal with gruesome stuff firsthand. And there's almost no way to talk about it which, with, with, without sounding insensitive, but they wouldn't think it was insensitive. Today it is, though, so I have to be careful. All right, so these are some of the early church uh, leaders, these apostolic fathers. Um, yeah, you can read some of them on your own, but this just kind of gives you a survey really quick. So let's move on a little bit, summarize a little bit more, fill in some holes about why Christians were persecuted. There'll be a little more later on as well. So this is the reason that Rome went after Christians. There's several of them. The first is that they wouldn't worship the emperor, and that's a no-no. It's the equivalent of pledging allegiance. If you're pledging allegiance in Rome, instead of like having your, oh, sorry about that, your hand on your heart, talking to a flag or whatever, it's you're burning incense in an official DMV building, basically, right? Instead of going to get your driver's license um, and, and, you know, showing your ID and all that, you would go and you would burn incense. You would get a documentation saying, hey, yeah, good Roman right here. And Christians wouldn't do that. Because incense is associated with worship, and only God gets our incense. So that was the first. Now, the Jews had an exception, like I mentioned. But by 70 AD, and even before that, we saw, it was clear Christians and Jews are not the same. And so Christians were no longer covered. And so now they're enemies of the state. A second reason that distinguishes kind of why Rome was harsher with Christians than Jews at the time. Jews were, in general, except for the zealots, they were content just being in their own neighborhood, hanging out with their own people, and they're not trying to, like, evangelize to non-Jews in general, right? Christians wanted everyone to believe in Jesus as Caesar, as Lord. That's how it would have been taken. We often don't realize this, but the word gospel is used by Roman emperors consistently. It's the gospel of Nero. Like they they had a gospel, that's the word used, and it's a gospel of prosperity and making, you know, Rome like it was in its former glory. It's bringing hope to the people. They had a gospel. And the Christians are like, we got the real gospel. That's like, that's like not cool. And so that's, that's a big deal. Um, and they're trying to convert people away from Caesar into Jesus. Not really. They, you know, pay your taxes to Caesar, but he's not your Lord. But that's a big deal. So that's a second reason. Um, they're generally pacifist inclined. Um, and, you know, that's their reputation. Were they actually pacifists? We're not really sure. Uh, they were personally. I think if you went back in time, hit a Christian across the face, they, they, they wouldn't hit you back. But were they actually like pacifists regard to the state? We're not really sure about that. But the, the reputation was, we put down our swords, turn them into farm tools and stuff. Like, that's not cool. You're weak, you know. Uh, they, they abstained from cl- classical literature. Think about the classics. 
in Greek Roman context, Homer, Hesiod, is that rain? Oh, that's one, that's a wonderful sound for you guys listening. You can't hear the rain. Maybe you can hear the rain. It's beautiful. I love it. Um, think about Zeus, and let's just keep this PG. But what Zeus did uh, to people and animals, and all this stuff going. Zeus was kind of like the Greek gods were very dirty, and Christians didn't want to touch it. So in general, Christians abstained from the classics of that, that culture. That made them weirdos, but it also kind of made them not part of the educational system. Uh, to give you a closer parallel that you might not like, but maybe something like Amish was their reputation, um, at least for a while. Were they all like that? No, but they had the reputation of not participating in the great literature, the great books of the period. Now, this is where they get into a lot of trouble, and that most of these Christians were slaves. Um, not all of them, but most of them were. Ignatius, Polycarp, all these people, they're exceptions. It was a slave class. And this is a message, think about like Philemon, but even think about Paul's letters. We often miss what Paul is doing in these household hierarchies, in this household code. He's subversive. But Paul's smart enough to realize I can't just say X. So he spoke in ways that anyone in that context reading would be like, holy cow, we're one, we're equals in Christ. This is a slave class that believed that Jesus is Caesar, that had the gospel, this spiritualized gospel against Rome, and there's a whole religion. And it seemed like these are, this is a rebellion. Christians had a bad reputation because of that. Um, especially upper class, did not look upon Christians well. They thought that they were trying to tear down all the structures that they built. Does that make sense? Pretty rough. We often miss this, but uh, it's really real reality. And you know what? The Romans were right. <laughs> That's what the Christians were doing. And it was done. They, they kind of won. It went from Rome where the ideal person was practically a narcissist to humility suddenly becoming a virtue post 300 AD. Humility has never been a virtue culturally. I don't think it is anymore today. Maybe it is. But Christians made it a virtue. They kind of overturned a lot of stuff. Well, there you go. And then, yeah, they're blamed for natural calamities. That's really more of a result. Every time something bad happened, it's like the Christians did it. <laughs> Just kind of assume the Christians did it. Uh, so bad reputation, and, and those are some of the reasons. Uh, moving on, the next major period of persecution, this brings us to John. When John got banished uh, to an island, he wasn't killed. Uh, there's some mythology about maybe how he's thrown in oil but escaped. I, it kind of sounds legendary. I think they just didn't want to kill John because he's a really likable dude. We're not really sure, though. Um, don't forget that Roman authorities weren't uh, wanting to kill Christians so much, right? Uh, they often would try to figure out ways for them to escape. And um, so anyway, John gets banished during this period of time under Domitian, and we're not sure why, but his calling card was Rome's former glory. And generally, Roman emperors that had that calling card um, would go after whatever minority just to, 
you know, kind of get the popular class riled up. Uh, Domitian likely used Christians as a scapegoat, but we're not exactly sure. Um, speaking of gospel of Roman emperors, uh, it might be hard to hear, but a lot of the presidential calling cards today got hope. Make America great again. Whatever you have. I'm not sure what Biden's is. Um, but most of them are just Roman, uh, just plagiarized completely, in fact. Make Rome great again was a big one. And got hope was another gospel. And uh, Domitian um, is not unlike later Roman emperors here. Um, When after Christians, John is banished, most other leadership is not around by then. And this brings us to Rome's general policy uh, regarding Christians. And you've already seen this implicitly. It's already the policy, but it's just not officially documented. And we, we actually just, we have a letter. Papyrus, it didn't rot. We somehow still have it, excuse me, in existence between the emperor, Trajan, oh, the guy that killed Ignatius, probably, we're not sure, Trajan and Pliny. And it's a conversation, Pliny is a governor in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and they're having a conversation um, about how to deal with Christians because by now they've become a pest, especially in Asia Minor. So Pliny writes his Lord, his Caesar, how are you dealing with Christians over there? This is, this is what I do. I um, don't go after Christians. There's too many of them. Too hard to make it illegal. But if Christians are told on, if they're caught, then we try to make them recant. And if they don't recant, we kill them. Does that sound good with you? And uh, Trajan replies, we have his reply, too. Yeah, that's awesome. That's what we're doing here in Rome, too. Good job. A lot of, you know, brown-nosing plenty here. But it's uh, telling because in the background for virtually from, you know, 70 or even 60 AD all the way to 313 AD, this is the official Roman policy. It's weird. It's hypocritical, right? It's, yeah. Uh, And that's why you'll read stories. They're not fictional, but you'll read in history about how bishops are going to their death and all their disciples and like church elders are following them like transcribing their letters for them. And that's not made up. That was okay, as long as somebody didn't tell on you. No one cares unless you're a bishop, typically. Yeah. Some weird stuff. So now I'm going to reflect on some larger categories here before we move on to some other fun events. We'll talk about some of the good stuff now. I know it's a lot of dark stuff pops up. Um, But there's some interesting development here as far as church organization goes. So we'll start with church organization. How is the church organized? Um, And uh, to to, to discuss this well, let's first talk about how the concept of church leadership slowly morphed, maybe slowly became a little bit more hierarchical. I keep saying that. Is that a word? Yay? Nay? Hierarchical. Sounds like I'm dumb which is true. So let's use that word (laughs) progression here. So this is really, this is actually one of the kind of controversial things. You talk to a Presbyterian, they say A. If you talk to a Baptist, they say B. And both of them, they don't really know. Um, Now, we're not really sure, but there's enough, yeah, 
let's just say maybe the words for bishop and the word for presbyter or elder are somewhat equivalent or equivalent enough in the Bible. They're not really used differently. In fact, your translation probably doesn't really distinguish it. It'll call a bishop an overseer, which I bet your head just is like, yeah, that's like an elder, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how some translations do it. Some have suggested that overseer is technically higher. doesn't really matter. Later on, it does go this way, though. So right after the Bible, when you read um, even somebody like, no, Clement doesn't. Ignatius, but Ignatius goes even further, they start treating bishop as kind of like the lead elder, the first among equals. Um, One person, probably wrongly, but they call it the president. Sounds super American, so let's go with that. Uh, And this is not that unusual because in the Jewish synagogue, you have a bunch of elders and then there's a ruler of the elders, that's actually more the next step, and it seems to take that clear, clearly, Ignatius takes this um, interpretation. He starts seeing the elder not just as a first among equal, or sorry, the bishop, the bishop not only as a first among equal, but actually the ruler, the boss of the, of the presbyters, the elder. And that's arguably before then, but certainly by 110 AD, that seems to be Ignatius's point of view. And by 180 or so, a lot happens, but by then it seems to be universal. It seems like all the churches are using this nomenclature. Just think about, for a second, you're like, well, why aren't they all consistent? But look at churches today. We're still not consistent, right? What's the difference between a pastor and an elder? You know, ask that question, Christians have different takes on it, right? Or bishop, and now you even use the B word, or bishop a bad word, right? So, anyway. Now, there's some exceptions to this development. Uh, Justin Martyr calls it the president, and he says there's only one leader. Um, But he's the only one saying that, so I think probably Justin maybe is confused. So, we love Justin. We're going to get to Justin today. Um, but his, his take is, is, is unusual. Uh, what's the authority of the bishop? What are they doing? Well, what, what, what you would describe a lead pastor doing. They're conducting the services. These aren't people in the background yet. These are people that are actually out. They're going to give the little mini sermonette. They're going to typically also launch the service up front. Um, so there you go. They're for sure, each bishop is over one city. Whether or not they thought of multiple churches in that city is a point of considerable dispute. And it's, wow, it's really technical. So I don't really want to get into it. And I'm not really certain myself. Whether these little areas were seen as small groups that the bishop was over and then they all attended the same Sunday service, or whether these small groups were actually considered distinct churches. That'll change your interpretation here. Notice that somebody's studying now. How is redemption led? How is it? It would be very confusing. First of all, they'd only have the internet to use as a source. They'd be very confused about the difference between pastor and elder. And what are these so-called redemption groups? Are those little mini churches? You see how this works? So sometimes time makes it difficult, but let's just focus on what we can know. 
Um, they were appointed through a couple of different ways. We're not, there's no consistent way, just like Paul. Paul sometimes said, choose your own elders. Paul also sometimes appointed elders in town, especially the immature cities. He's like, I'm going to choose your leaders. Well, this happens also uh, throughout the early, early church history. Sometimes it seems like the congregation choose. Sometimes other bishops would come in and choose it for, like probably Corinth, for example, isn't choosing its elders. Uh, The bishop was for quite a while considered an equal, a colleague with the elders, even if they were first among equal. Now, this gets developed over time, and you kind of have like boss and subordinate and under that deacon. That very possibly is already in place in the early 100s, but it's certainly not really universal until later. So that's some of just the gist of what a bishop would do. I think saying lead pastor instead of bishop is actually kind of helpful because the bishop word just really can lead to all kinds of oddities, and you sort of confuse it with later on church history. All right, so during this time, and this should make sense with you, as you think about this, just critically think for a second. Um, As the church is journeying through time, it became very apparent that people like Ignatius and Polycarp and others attached to the apostles, knowing the apostles, they got the gospel. They were solid, trustworthy people. Meanwhile, there were folks that said they were Christian coming out from the middle of nowhere with a totally different gospel, right? And so early on, Christians attached to this idea of apostolic succession relatively quickly. What it meant early on is this. This is not formalized yet. This is not simply, oh, I'm Bishop of Antioch, thus I have the same authority as John, because Ignatius did. That's not there yet. No, this is those who study under apostles, functionally speaking, have more authority than others because they know the writers of scripture. They know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Does that make sense? By the 200s, this gets formalized, and by the 300s, it's pretty set. And it turns into something where merely because I am the bishop in Rome, I have the power of Peter, Or because I'm the bishop in Constantinople, I have the power of Andrew, who brought Peter to Jesus, by the way, so I have more power. They they love these little sports rivalries, right? The Cubs versus the, you know, Cardinals. Everyone thinks the Cubs wins this, right? Or the Sox. (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's that's what churches back then, too. It's like, woo, Peter, Rome. Alexandria had a really good sports team. I mean, Bishop, uh, good times. Seriously. And uh, the bishops that were super awesome and super wise got the title Pope assigned to them. And that just means father. It's a title of respect. Uh, The first bishop that was called Pope was an Alexandrian bishop. They were the nerdy ones that really knew theology. Everyone respected the Alexandrian bishops. And the first one was called Pope. There's a Pope in Antioch. Eventually, that title just applied to Rome, but that's according to the West. The East, meanwhile, has another uh, history. And they're both right, by the way. So um, fascinating development. It turns from functional to formal rather quickly. But if you've ever played the game of telephone, 
you know that like 10 people in, you maybe don't trust it, but like two people in, I bet you do. I trust Ignatius. I trust people he's uh, trained, like Irenaeus. Irenaeus died in 202 AD, that late. And he's talking about John. So cool. So that's apostolic succession. Sorry if that has like a sour taste in your mouth. Um, what the reformers thought, like, so our like brand of Christianity, what the reformers thought was um, we're of that line, right? We're part of that succession. But they messed it up around 600 AD. Let's go into church teaching before we get into the heresies. Uh, for the most part, we don't know too much except for that the church did a lot of catechism, a lot of just simple question and answer for people that didn't have a background in the Bible. But you just go to church and you just hear, hear a lot of the Bible. It's mostly reading it out loud. And you stood while you worshiped. You didn't sit. They didn't have pews, uh, pews uh, seats until the, th- the 13th century. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So they, they all stood and the bishop sat because that's, you know, the person in charge gets to rest. Sort of the other way around today. Wait a, wait a second. You, know, you guys have to stand. Um, but as time went on, and you can already see this in the New Testament, the development of certain heretical beliefs. These are just any belief that contradicts the fundamentals of Christianity. A heresy is anything that f- contradicts like the very essence of the faith. Um, so, you know, well, we'll give you a couple examples here. These are really the only two around that were any issue this early on. The first, these are going to be odd words. This is Greek. And it comes from a word meaning to seem. So the docetis or the docetism kind of changes the emphasis on the syllable there. Docetism held that Jesus was definitely God. But he just looked human. He maybe felt human, but he's not actually human. It's like a hologram, like a really fancy alien tech, God tech, that makes it look like God became human. But that's just a hologram, you know, like the Michael Jackson hologram. It's not really Michael, for any of you that aren't. <laughs> Boo. You, but, you know, like that, that's sort of how the docetists thought of this. And here's why. It makes sense. You should empathize with this. These aren't bad people. This is just a difficult thing to understand. How can Jesus be God, infinite, eternal, outside of space and time, without limit in power, but also be human in time, limited in power, <laughs> right? And the docetists, they had a Greek background. They're just like, well, that's dumb. Contradiction, chose one. And they, 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 could, they could understand the God part. And perhaps he created a projection of himself that looks human. There you have it. Makes sense. Well, um, you can see why this isn't very helpful when you think it all out. Now, again, they're early on in church history. They didn't have the benefit of reading books and knowing how their ideas might lead in a bad direction. So they didn't see the consequences yet. But later on, as Christians reflect, it's like, well, think about this. If he's not human, how can he save you? And they're like, touche, right? That, that's the problem with this view, and it was ultimately very quickly rejected. You already see John arguing against this in proto-form in the Gospel of John, and especially in John 1, that which we've seen, which we've touched, we've felt them with their hands. Come 
on, he's not a hologram. Right? But also the word become flesh. You think it's all, John is obsessed with defeating this. So it's already, obsessed is a strong word. Um, but it's already, you know, around in Greek culture. And so go figure that Ignatius would pick up on this, argue against it, that all of John's followers argued against it. And it's just very clear. I mean, how do you deal with the death of a hologram, right? How do you deal with like a weeping hologram? He's just a projection. Well, it just doesn't fit very well with how salvation works. Um, so that's the first. Popular among Greeks. This next one was popular among people that had a Jewish background. Instead of a Greek background, you had a Jewish background. Chances are you got some Ebionite tendencies back then. Ebionism is the view that Jesus is definitely human. He's the Messiah. He's the you know, he's King David, he's this new Adam, he's the new David, he's everything. He's the king, uh, he's Emmanuel, God with us. But he's not actually Yahweh. Yahweh is infinite. Yahweh is outside of time. That dude is not walking Jesus, right? So they, again, pick and choose, they, they, they landed on the, he's just human. You can understand why. I mean, the angel talking to Mary doesn't take great lengths to explain, by the way, this is actually Yahweh. Just, it's, it's messianic language. It's King David. This is the Messiah, Mary. Uh, did, did Mary at the time, I mean, ask her in heaven, but I really doubt she's like, oh yeah, this is definitely Yahweh. Yahweh. I just, it doesn't become clear until around the age of 30. And everyone leaves him when he starts saying that crazy stuff about being Yahweh. So um, an Ebionite, somebody with a Jewish background, you can empathize with that, right? It makes sense. But it doesn't work when you start thinking through the logic of how salvation works. How can that person on the cross save me if it's just another one of me? The Ebionites would say, well, God bestowed special power in that moment. You see see how it's not quite as satisfying as God and human reconciled in one person. There's something more powerful. There's more reasons than that. Jesus just clearly says, I'm God. Anyway, so those are a couple of, the, of the, these alternative Christian views. They, they died out over time. They, they aren't as intellectually appealing, and they died out for that reason. Uh, there's this response. It's now called, we call it orthodoxy. It just means right teaching, um, um, the right view. So you have the Apostles' Creed written during this time, 150s, 180s, we're not exactly sure. Uh, No, the Apostles didn't write it, but I bet their students were involved. Um, So classic statement, this is the earliest major creed, I think, right? I mean, you can think of ones in the Bible that come out, but since then. Um, And if you read it... Between the lines, it's really obvious they're attacking docetism and ebionism. You don't even need to know the words because you can see it, right? They have this parallel between I believe in God the Father Almighty, etc. And, excuse me, in, his, in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord Yahweh. We, we lose that sometimes in that translation, who, and now it's going to move on and talk about how he's definitely human, just like you. You were conceived, and he was too, right? Suffered. God doesn't suffer. God's outside of time. Jesus suffered because he's human. He suffered, uh, was crucified, 
God can't be crucified. He's not bodily. <laughs> Died. God can't die. God's not dead. Right? I don't like the movies, but I think it's a great, it's a, it's a great reference. No, that's, I'm not saying I don't watch them. I'm just, God's not dead. And he was buried. God can't be buried. God can't die. And this, again, this is just falling, human existence. Humans descend into the place of death. They descend into, this is a really bad translation of Hades. Um, so that's Hades, which is just translating the, um, the Hebrew shalom. That's the place of death. It's where your soul goes when you die. Your body rots in the grave. Your soul goes to the place of death. That's all this is saying. Jesus is going through human experience just like we all do. He's conquering it as he goes. Yeah. And then the third day. Okay, that part's not like us yet. So again, just proving his humanity and then ascending into heaven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is the difference here is he's the glorified human now. He's always been God, but now we have a glorified mediator. Humanity itself is in the place of God. And you have this divine tractor beam that's got you, right? That's Jesus. It's pretty cool. Right there, translate the tractor beam a little differently. So um, anyway, I hope that makes sense with the descent into um, Hades, which is rendering Sheol, the place of death. Um, this is what Jesus is talking about with the thief, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, Hades or Sheol, I'm just going to say Sheol because Hades can also render hell, but that's something different. That doesn't exist yet, right? That's going to be the final place, like there's a heaven final heavens and earth, right? This place restored. And then this other place where you can worship yourself. That's awful. And that's hell. But this is rendering the place of death. And um, they conceived. You can read this in the Bible. It's all over the Bible, but there's not like a passage you just see it in. It's just underlying the text that, that, that uh, Sheol had these two compartments. The righteous ones with Yahweh, because Yahweh makes them righteous, and the unrighteous ones who reject Yahweh. Right, The righteous place is called paradise or Abraham's bosom or just Sheol, connecting now. And then the unrighteous place, more, it doesn't turn up as much, but Gehenna is a rendering of that. Right? That's what it's referring to. So Jesus went there and he conquered it for you and me. He's going through human experience, conquering it along the way. Imagine God being conceived Imagine God becoming human. It's really fascinating. And the rule of faith is just a phrase that they're meaning by the gospel. Uh, what you call the gospel, the essentials of the faith, they called the rule of faith. And it's amazing how identical it is to today. Uh, the rule of faith is something that is basically how they, how they understood the basics of the Bible. God created we messed it up, God redeemed, etc. So that's the Christian response. That's some of their teaching. You don't probably go to, her, go to church and talk too much about these different views, but they do come up in the background, like in that creed. How did Christian worship look? Well, we'll dive in really quick. Um, this is the Sunday worship service. We have some on this. The best we have is from Justin Martyr who's writing in the 150s, 160s. We have some other sources too. Um, but here's what we know. By the time that Christianity was made illegal, 
They stop meeting in, you know, foyers, in houses. They stop meeting at synagogues, obviously. And they, the church wasn't allowed to own property. Christians aren't allowed to own property, sorry. So in, they met in catacombs on Sunday morning. Your church service would generally be a burial ground of maybe your favorite bishop who, you know, died. Because where else do you go? Nobody, everybody, you know, wants you dead. So they hid in kind of graveyards. And if you can imagine, this was probably super weird, just like it is today. If you hear somebody playing the guitar in a cemetery, you run, typically, at night, I'm talking, because this happened at night as well, I should have said. So they meet in catacombs and crypts in graveyards, right? And there's two parts to the service. And I already mentioned this before, if you guys have been here, the first part, all your friends are invited, and that's the service without the Eucharist. That's all the reading the Bible stuff. The bishop would come up, say, peace with you, and everyone would say, and also with you, or also with your soul. So those are the opening words. It seems like this is pretty standard. Sometimes they would have a different variation. And then they would dive straight into reading the Bible. Uh, They would start in the Old Testament, and then they would do something between Acts and Revelation, generally focusing on an epistle. Um, And then they would go back to like probably a psalm. And then they would always end. The only thing that's consistent is starting in the old and ending in the gospels. One of the gospels. Matthew was always the favorite. um, And so generally ending in Matthew. Uh, Again, they're reading long sections of scripture and they're all standing up. It's hardcore. This is a three-hour service. All combined. I mean, what, what are we doing? Let's do three hours, right? Uh, that's a joke. I don't, I don't want that. The Puritans brought that back, and then evangelicals are like, nah, we're good. <laughs> Bishop comes up, uh, gives the sermonette, really just reflecting on that gospel, and, um, you know, it's really a pretty responsive sermon. After that, um, the bishop would say, all right, this is the part just for Christians, and they would start the Eucharist. Everyone brought their own bread and wine. They all poured the wine in a silver cup. Justin mentions a silver cup. I'm sure there's variation. Uh, There's a long prayer, really long prayer. And he would say, let's pray about this topic. And then everyone silently pray, and then the, this kind of sounds familiar, right? <laughs> and then the bishop would like summarize it really quick, and then let's talk about the, pray about this topic, and they would just go through and um, pray together. This led then to the kiss of peace. Justin was very clear: the men are kissing men, and the women are kissing women. It's like kind of a weird detail, but Rome thought something else was going on. So this is the way you greet back then. I realize with COVID, this is incredibly stupid. <laughs> we like a shan- handshake. I prefer a wave, right? It's just like, eh. Yeah. So, you know, conventions change, but that's okay. We're all saying hi. Are we? Uh, kiss of peace. And then from there, you have the meal. And it was, you know, a feast. The reminder here is always the resurrection. It's Jesus is Lord. God became human. And now we have access into God. It's really cool. Um, it was um, a celebration. And uh, that, that's, the, that's the Sunday service. Oh, and then they would say, um, yeah, some, some version of a benediction, kind of like what we do. I right? go now in peace, et cetera, et cetera. 
So there you have it. That's your Sunday morning service. Now, separate from this, uh, at least for the most part, is baptism. Baptism didn't happen every Sunday or even once a month. Baptism, best we can tell, uh, for, uh, it happened once a year on Easter, sometimes on Pentecost too. So I'm kind of like, you know, I want to be careful because there were, in some places they celebrated twice. You could be baptized in either time. It's still kind of the same time of the year. And if you're converted, you spend the rest of the year as a catechumen, somebody training, making sure that you kind of understand who Jesus is. That's hardcore though. That's nine months at least of training. And then they would be, they'd have a baptism um, on, the, on Easter Sunday or Pentecost. Did I say Easter before? I feel like that word, I just said it for the first time, on Easters. And they uh, generally immersed in water unless they're in a desert, and then they'd probably pour or sprinkle. You don't want to waste that much water, right? Uh, there's no uh, commonality of baptism yet. Sorry, folks. And they would go down naked. This is before Victorian era. Human bodies not sexualized the same back then as it is today. So everyone was baptized naked. And when they came up, they were given a white robe. Purity. And also, that's what martyrs were given in, um, in artwork. Uh, so yeah, once a year, and you kind of trained until then. If you imagine having a welcome to our new at a church, uh, here's an intro to being a Christian class for nine months, and then we'll baptize you, seems pretty harsh to Christians today. Whew. All right, so that's the worship. That's Sunday, and once a year, maybe twice a year, dealio. Well, we're almost out of time, but fortunately, this Christian relation to society we've already covered. I don't really need to. This is the last slide. I don't really need to go over this again because it's all stuff that, um, you know, you know, uh, Christians. This is sort of the reputation. They're infidels, that was a big word attached to them. I know it's kind of different today. I've never once heard a Christian called an infidel. Well, in the Middle East they are. There you go. Unpatriotic, again, unusual. Hard not to make more jokes, but, you know, I am being recorded. So my students have so much fun. Because I'm just ripping on everyone. I just rip on myself, right? Um, Self-righteous. You know, again, all this is like, were they really? Or is that the reputation? Of course, there's always smug Christians. We all have a smug Christian friend. And it's you, right? (laughs) I got a friend. Um, Weak. This is a big one. Christians thought humility was a virtue, Turning your cheek is a ver- I mean, the typical Roman pride, even like borderline what we would call narcissism, was a virtue, strength, leadership. And all these Christians were like, ooh, Jesus gives me my identity. And like, okay, I give myself my identity. Weakling. This comes out quite a bit. Um, there's a, a famous philosopher, a Greek philosopher, who debated Justin, by the way, but. Uh, he called the Christian understanding of salvation cheap grace. Sound familiar? You guys just want to feel better about yourself. So you can like sin, and then you're like, oh, I take it back, God. Just man up, woman up, and create your own identity. It's like nothing's changed, right? He misunderstood the gospel, by the way. It's very clear in his writings, but it's, it's fascinating that his take is that. 
Oh, this is a weird way to end. So, <laughs> whoops, should have left more time for this one. But we've kind of already covered it, right? What's going on in that love feast? What's going on? Romans had a perception that was definitely not true. No doubt was not true, but they had this perception. Um, and I think we've already talked about this, that it kind of came across as a um, Roman party. But in addition to that, something I don't think I did say is um, Christians eventually invented the orphanage system. Orphanages are not a thing. Why would you do that? Like, it's just, it's a drain to your resources. Do you see how, this is how a Roman thinks. I mean, this isn't my opinion. This is how a Roman thinks, right? But Christians were famous because all their neighbors are watching it happen and very confused for taking babies that were thrown out in the trash after they were called trash heaps and the Romans would burn it once a week and it was it was legal to throw out your baby you couldn't kill your baby actively but you could let the elements take it so there's crying babies and widows typically mostly widows um, early on found a calling of rescuing babies off the trash pile. And everyone's watching this happen, like, why would you do that? You guys don't have, you're already poor. You're already slaves. Where are these babies going? Well, back in that day, they kind of had a Talladega Nights perception of Jesus. They liked to picture Jesus all seven ounce, or seven pounds, six ounces, baby. They liked to picture Jesus as a baby, and they also knew, that was a weird joke, if you've never watched, sorry, Will Ferrell reference is kind of weird. That dialogue is really good satire of Christian culture included, but definitely wider culture. They pictured Jesus as a baby, and they knew that Christians thought they were eating Jesus in some way or another that they never explained, and they kept secret. So the guess was, the rumor was that Christians were baking babies into the bread in communion, and they were cannibals. Yeah. And cannibalism was not accepted back then. I'm, is this too far? I, okay, this is rated up, it is now upgraded to rated R. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to cover church history with just being honest sometimes, and this is what Romans thought. And now we have somebody like Justin Martyr defending Christians from these claims. Read his first apology. It's his most famous. Apology is a defense in Greek. And it's his most famous defense. And he has to defend against stuff that you would never think would need a defense. We are not eating babies. Um, We're rescuing them. Because that's what Jesus did to us. Right? And that that, that rumor didn't stay around for too long. Justin Martyr, I didn't mention, but he was a higher class. He was a philosopher. Hey, there you go, philosopher, church leader. Um, and so eventually Romans, okay, we're just confused. But that was, that was the rumor. Lots of false narratives going on. Fortunately today, you can be sure whenever you read our news, whatever outlet, it nails it every time. There are none of, no, no false narratives. So, well, anyway, it's kind of human nature, um, And here we are. I have to end now. Not the best ending point. I apologize for that. Um, Anyway, was that a little rough today? You guys all right? Yeah, taking it. First time I did this in class, it was so, this is like when I was eight, you know, 10. When did I start? 
11 years? No, I don't know. First time I taught this in class, it was so reprehensible to the students and so foreign, clearly professor, clearly Justin's being sarcastic, right? Justin Martin, there's no way. That's how just disconnected. So I get it. I get the first time hearing this might be kind of weird. All right, questions. <laughs> we, can put, we have plenty of time still, so. Yeah. Oh, good, yeah. Yeah, the Nicene, that's a, so the question is, what's the difference between the Apostles and the Nicene Creed? The Apostles' Creed is much earlier, um, yeah, even more foundational in some ways, although it's also vaguer. It's a little less precise on some terminology. Uh, the Nicene Creed is written in 325, and then it's not quite good enough, so it's revised in 381. And it's called the Nicene Constantinoplean Creed. Just called the Nicene Creed for short. And that's a little bit more of a full explanation of how Jesus is God and the whole the Trinity. Uh, this early on, people are like, yeah, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You get that in the right, but they don't know how to explain how God is one, and yet there are three. How does that? So um, the Nicene Creed explains that in uh, 381, ultimately. Oh, very good. Not quite. So the question is, was the Nicene Creed the reason for the split between the, the West and the East, the Greek and the Latins? Not exactly, but it is over. The, so the West in the 800s, early 900s, they add in a clause to make it extra clear that Jesus is God because there's, um, there's more people that denied Jesus' divinity that lived in Spain at the time. This is not background. You need, um, and it's fascinating, though. So they added the clause that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So that and from the Son is the filioque clause, because that in Latin, and from the Son. Uh, the Latins added it, and the Greeks were not consulted. Like, hey, we're supposed to be one body. We're one in Jesus. And you apparently think we're apostates or something? Yeah, we can do it if we want, you know. And, and so ultimately, that was one reason for the split between the two, which culminated, you know, maybe year 1200. There's different ways of, if you ask an Eastern, they'll say the church split in about 1200 AD. That was one reason. That wasn't the only. The Greeks thought, uh, I, I'll stop. It's, it's fascinating, like, uh, reading about this, is, but that, I, it's just unnecessary. Oh, yeah, let's go back to that. There's all kinds of fun stuff in the creed. I'm curious if you could touch on the, the wording of the Catholic Church and mm-hmm. when they started to determine that. Yeah. Yeah, so Catholic, it shows up um, really early, and what it means is of the whole. When uh, Jesus is spirit, uh, praying that the, his followers be one uh, as he is one with the Father. So you think of John, the book of John. That's what Catholic is getting at. It means of the whole. In other words, you're either of the body of Christ or you're not. Catholic uh, sometimes is rendered universal to make it sound less touchy because some people hear the word Catholic and they think it means Roman Catholic. But that's not a thing yet. There's no such thing as Roman Catholic yet this early on. Catholic is what um, Christians, like any Christian um, traditionally is going to say, I'm a Catholic. I'm an Orthodox Catholic. But in the Western church, that word Catholic stuck, and they preferred that word. 
And then the other church, the Greek church, really liked the word orthodox, so they chose that word. If you say, I'm orthodox, that can mean I'm a Christian, I'm not a heretic, or it can mean I'm an Eastern Orthodox. Depending on if it's capitalized, Orthodox, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox, or lowercase. Same thing with Catholic. So Protestants think they're Catholic, lowercase c. Uh, uppercase c would mean Roman Catholic, and that's nomenclature that began in the 1600s. So much later than this. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's kind of, kind of confusing. Um, and the reason is, you're all like, well, we're Protestant. It's like, yeah, but that's what the Catholics called us. It's a protester. You protesters and the Protestants loving irony and comedy. You're like, yeah, we're the Protestants. But they thought they were the true Catholics. That's the debate. Who's the true Catholic? And um, the answer might surprise you, but that'll have to be for another class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's kind of like how rumors in our culture and how it just contradicts. Um, it's inconsistent, and it's probably different Romans that thought one thing as other Romans. and you know, So you're probably not getting the critiques from the same people, uh, but those are, I'm just sort of summarizing uh, different reputations that Christians had, but probably not the same Roman would think the same thing. Yeah, it does seem contradictory. Any other questions? Yeah, that's a great question that I cover in like right in the next, like if I was continuing this next week, I'd be covering it. So the question is about like canon, when did that develop? The canon of scripture, meaning sort of the rule, the standard of it, not like a boom canon, um, a standard, uh, anyway, lame joke. And uh, we don't have too much. on. So the earliest reference we have to Christians having a canonical awareness is a piece of papyrus that we dug up. It's called the Moratorian Fragment. And it's basically Christians talking to one another about what books they find acceptable, disputed, and heretical. Those are the three categories. Acceptable, disputed, or heretical. It dates to 150 to 180 AD. We're not exactly sure. Again, isn't it cool that we just find like papyrus in the ground? It's so cool. So we know there's an awareness by then. Before then, what I can say is this. There's no explicit discussion of the canon, much like the Trinity. It comes up, though, incidentally, and you can tell by what books Christians are quoting. And they're quoting A, but not so much B, and definitely not C, not the disputed or the heretical. Um, And so what, what seemed to be without dispute all the time were the 14 Pauline books, the four Gospels and um, First John almost, I, yeah, First John always makes it. This is with other sources too. Um, those, those were always passing. They, they took Hebrews to be Pauline. So that's why there's an added book there. When was it officialized? Um, that's a long process, but suffice it to say that between when it was unofficial and when it was official, the canon didn't change. They're using the same books functionally, but they don't seem to have an, an explicit... Um, they don't have like a list 
early on, like, hey, use these books, but not these books. So not until the, uh, I get to some of that in the 200s and then in the 300s. But they're just stamping what Christians have always believed by then. Yeah. Yes. What did they use those for what? Yeah, so there's this big hoopla between, um, let's see, lowercase Catholics and uppercase Catholics. Yeah, I like this better. But see why it's confusing and why Protestant, anyway. So Protestants follow a guy named Jerome in 400 AD that argued the Apocrypha is not on par with scripture. It's still really important, way better than John Piper's books, but like John Piper's here, here's Apocrypha, but scripture's like in a different class, right? And um, that's what Jerome argued, and he used the, the, the Jews as a reference point because no Jew thought the Apocrypha was scripture. Uh, Roman Catholics follow our hero and friend, Augustine of Hippo, who they just disagree on this point. Augustine argued that while the Apocrypha isn't quite scripture, it, it should be treated on a similar level as scripture and can be consulted in an authoritative manner. And so... Um, Functionally today, they, they do treat the typical canon that you regard as on a higher level, and Apocrypha is still secondary, but it kind of gets mixed up quite a bit. And there's certain things that happen in the Apocrypha. There are certain doctrines in the Apocrypha that a big C Catholic will take um, that a Protestant would reject, like uh, purgatory, for example, um, uh, Etc. There's there's all kinds of references. So Protestants have a high view of the Apocrypha, but it's nothing approaching Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a really fun discussion that can really trigger some people. Because there's still some, like there's some churches in town that are like, no, uh, Hebrews was written by Paul. And, and that's possible. Paul possibly used a scribe he ever, never used before, gave that scribe a lot of freedom in writing, and that accounts for the really different style. It's a very different approach than Paul's letters. They just seem very different. Uh, early church often thought that it was Apollo writing it because it's really preachy. It's like a pastor wrote it. A lot of great sermons, right? You know, they have like all the, the heroes of the faith, you know, and a lot of fun stuff. Uh, early church, early on, they regarded it as Pauline, is, is all we really know. Whether Paul wrote it, they thought Paul literally wrote it, or it's just related to him. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's a, a lot of that's just sort of looking at the syntax and going, this is a very different style. Paul still could have wrote it. Yeah. But we're just not sure who wrote it. Like, it's one of those books that there's almost any, you can take any guess, and somebody in church history argued that person wrote it. Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? <laughs> uh, there's an incredible diversity of guesses on that. Any other questions? Yeah, yeah, why isn't Timothy an apostolic father? Well, he doesn't 
unfortunately, and that's really sad, he doesn't come up much in history, so we just don't know much about him. But yeah, he would have had apostolic father status during that day. It's just not one we know much about. So that's a great question. In Luke 2, there's, there's, there's other, they're like, why didn't they make it? Well, they just don't show up, unfortunately. Any other questions? Fun stuff? At least we didn't talk about anything controversial today. That's, that's good. Uh, yeah. And why? Yeah, so, oops, when did transubstantiation, when was it like a thing, and why? Um, Middle Ages, uh, it's developed most fully by Thomas Aquinas, and it's systematized. I'll explain a little more in a second, but why is to make it comprehensible. Um, How in the world can something be both bread and uh, body of Christ, for example. And transubstantiation is a way of arguing that the form remains the same. It's still bread, but the inward substance transitions mysteriously into body of Christ. It's literally body of Christ. Like The substance is literally body of Christ. It's a transubstantiation, transubstance. Um, so it's a way of making it comprehensible. If you actually understand it, it makes sense. Uh, but you need to understand Aristotelian philosophy, and we don't really do that today, and I don't even care for it. <laughs> so it seems kind of silly. Early in church history, they didn't know how to articulate it, and there was a diversity of views on the real presence of Jesus in the bread. Uh, they all thought real presence, but it's not clear how that works. Is it a spiritual presence? Is it bodily? I think mostly latter mostly bodily presence, but they never articulated how it works. So it's just one of those things that's kind of just a mystery that we don't know how to use words for. Kind of like the Trinity before it was developed a couple hundred years after we're discussing. Everyone believed in it, but no one knew how to articulate it. Can, can, can anyone in here articulate in detail photosynthesis in a plant? You believe in it but it's hard to articulate. You have to be a scientist, right? Not really. I mean, that's simple, but you get my point. It's sort of like that with these other issues as well. Protestants reject transubstantiation uh, without, I don't think there's any one that do, do accept it, uh, but they still take real presence typically. Any other questions? Fun stuff. I don't want to take you guys too long. We're kind of late, so I'll just cut us off. If you have any more questions, you can ask me. Feel like I drank coffee this late. Jeez. Oh, it was the tiramisu. Oh, no. I had four tiramisus today. Don't do that. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll see you all later. Oh, yeah, this is it. Yeah, this is it.